So, where did you get your guilty conscience from? I'm not saying you've got one, I'm just saying that's where we come to in our programme today on Search for Truth Radio, your Bible teaching programme with Brian Johnston. So, thanks for tuning in, and a reminder that this present series is called Sowing in Hard Soil, where Brian seeks to support anyone seeking to communicate the Gospel, particularly where people's hearts may be hard, such as in Western society. In the first four weeks of this series, we've looked at the different aspects of the Gospel, its social context, integrity, means of communication and biblical authenticity. Then follows the quest for the evidence of the existence of God. Last week, evidence for the existence of God in creation. But this time, and this is where the leading question comes from, where did you get your guilty conscience? This time it's the giving of the law, God's standard for righteousness. Here's Brian. Thanks, John. The German philosopher Nietzsche, who died in the year 1900, is the person famed for popularising the idea that God is dead. In other words, he proclaimed the age of faith in a deity who was our maker and judge was over. Darwin had then recently made it possible for people to believe there was no God, with only time and chance being responsible for all that we see. And if that was true, then it followed that we could make up our own rules. Nietzsche understood that such an idea, as with any idea, had consequences. With the framework for absolute truth and morality dismantled, he foresaw the horrors that awaited the world in the 20th century, that being the bloodiest in recorded history. And still, we've not learnt our lesson. The delusion that there's no God still permeates Western society. In a moment, we'll hear how the Apostle Paul talks about society having been blinded, or in other words, being deluded. But let's start a little further back in his writings, writings that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here he begins by contrasting the law of Moses with its famous Ten Commandments, contrasting it with Christianity and the supernatural empowerment it provides through the Holy Spirit given to believers by God. Let's listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 3 from verse 7. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, that's referring to the Ten Commandments written on two stone tablets, if that came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul informs us here 
that there was a glory associated with the law, with the giving of the law through Moses to the Jewish people, God's people, in the Old Testament times. He's referring here to a visible glory. But that wasn't the only glory. Moses could say to the people in his time, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 8, What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? In other words, there was also a moral glory that belonged to the law. There was a virtue and a value in that moral code that God gave to Israel that no other people on earth had. It's testimony to this value that the justice systems of many western lands were built basically upon the principles that are enshrined in God's law with its Ten Commandments. But this wonderful legacy of Judeo-Christian influence is now being increasingly eroded in Western society. So let's get back to the fact that the Apostle Paul was really talking about a visible glory associated with the giving of the law at the time of Moses. When Moses came out from the presence of God, the skin of his face shone. However, the effect faded over time. To prevent the people from being able to see the radiance of his face decreasing, Moses, we're told, used to put a veil over his face. Then Paul says something quite striking. He tells us that we're not like Moses. The difference, he says, is that we, meaning witnessing Christian believers today, remain physically unveiled before others whenever we communicate God's good news in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean there's no veil of any kind today. There is, Paul says, only it's now transferred to the unbelieving hearts of listeners. Paul goes on to explain, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Don't lose heart, Paul says, for it's discouraging to see little obvious response to the gospel. If our gospel is veiled, Paul reminds us, it's veiled in the hearts and minds of unbelievers. Satan blinds the unbelieving to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, including in the first instance the glory of God seen in the giving of the law through Moses in Old Testament times. This ought, in God's plan, to have led to the fullest glory of God becoming visible in Christ. But in the first instance, with the glory of the law, we are talking about the glory of the judge, God in all his righteousness, his holy justice. Many today have been brought up to think we're here as a result of time and chance. We're all simply recycled star stuff from a cosmic accident. How can we tell if we crawled out of a warm pond and ascended ever upwards by sheer fluke from microbe to man? How can we tell if that's right or wrong? We can at least begin to answer that by noticing that we not only make factual statements such as you speak the truth, 
but we also often use sentences that carry a sense of obligation or expectation, such as, you should speak the truth. That brings us into the territory of recognising something as being our moral duty. Philosophers debate whether an awareness of moral obligations is in fact really an awareness of God's commands or his divine laws. If it is so, then the ordinary person who is aware of moral obligations does have a kind of awareness of God. This agrees with the Bible when it tells us that God has put eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. An argument for God's existence from such obligations can easily be drawn up as follows. First, there are objective moral obligations. Second, God provides the best explanation of the existence of moral obligations. And third, then, or at very least probably, God exists. Truth such as, it is wrong intentionally to kill innocent humans, holds universally and is necessarily true. According to British philosopher Richard Swinburne, there's no great probability that moral awareness will occur in a godless universe. The fact that we humans are even aware of moral facts is surprising and calls for an explanation. Moral beliefs are not required in order to produce survival advantage. But if God exists, he has significant reason to bring about conscious beings with moral awareness, since his intended purpose for humans includes making it possible for them to choose good over evil while developing a relationship with God. On the other hand, atheists have to deny the very existence of evil in our world. Their self-appointed spokesman says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Those are the words of Richard Dawkins. You simply have to remember an atrocity such as the 9-11 event to realise that this idea of there being no evil is quite unrealistic. The religious scholar Aquinas argued that among human beings there are to be found those who possess such qualities as good, true and noble, but that there are gradations. Some noble people are nobler than others who are noble. When we grade things in this way, we are at least implicitly comparing them to some absolute standard, and this gradation is only possible if there is some being which has this quality to a maximum extent. This being, which provides the standard, is also the cause or explanation of the existence of these qualities, and must be God. In Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the glory of God, he was referring to God's standard for us humans, who are made in his image. He calls us to repent and turn to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in him 
as the lawgiver. Last time I said that believing in God brings us the opportunity to put right our relationship with Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. However, the reward is not earned. It is the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness for sin for the believer in the Gospel message. That's God's good news. So, I'd like to remind you that all our talks are available online or as a transcript book, and then you can uh, do further study or fill in missed programmes. But here's how to get the book. Either you can download it yourself from churchesofgod.info forward slash media, or if you're not able to do that and would like to request a hard copy book, just write in and ask for Sewing in Hard Soil. You can use email or the post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. So it's been great to share your company again. Do join us next time when Brian will be investigating evidence for the existence of God by the presence of Jesus Christ in human form upon this earth. That's the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But till then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you.